And good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is February 7th, 2010. This is class number 27, and welcome to all of you. We're going to be starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 12, verse 3. Chapter 12 in Proverbs, verse 3. And again, as always, uh, I encourage you to uh, ask questions as we go along. You can use the chat box or uh, request the microphone uh, at your preference. Uh, but this is designed to be an interactive process, uh, just like uh, learning how to ice skate or learning how to uh, uh, you know, do carpentry on a house or learning how to do plumbing. Uh, it's best done by actually trying it out. And the way we do that in the world of thought and ideas is by asking questions and uh, wrestling around, if you will, with the ideas uh, until things become clear to us. So uh, I'd invite you to be uh, part of that process. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 3 reads, A man will not be established by wickedness, and the root of the righteous will not falter. A man will not be established by wickedness, and the root of the righteous will not falter. So I would ask you, what are the questions? What questions should we be asking about that verse in order to understand it? Before we get to trying to answer what the verse is saying, we want to get the questions out on the table. Uh, to make sure we have all the salient ones out there, and that gets us, in, first of all, into the habit of asking questions, and it also uh, helps develop that skill. So what questions would we ask in order to understand the verse, a man will not be established by wickedness, and the root of the righteous will not falter? Any thoughts? Again, you can put those in the text box, or... Request a microphone. A man will not be established by wickedness, and the root of the righteous will not falter. What could we ask? So let me suggest some possibilities. First of all, what does it mean for a man to be established by wickedness? Because it says a man will not be established by wickedness. Well, what does it mean for someone to be established by wickedness? And why won't it happen? The verse is telling us that it will not happen. The question is why? And it says the root of the righteous will not falter. Well, what does it mean by the root of the righteous? And... Importantly, why will they not falter? So, I'd like to start with the second half and ask the question, answer the, the question we just asked, what is the root of the righteous? And let's first carefully note the wording of the proverb. It does not say uh, that the righteous will not falter. It says the root of the righteous will not falter. A root is something that generally sits below the surface of the soil, so it's not necessarily seen with the eyes, 
and it is the sustenance and support source of the plant or the tree. So what do you think would be the root, then, of the righteous? What is their sustenance and support? Any ideas? Okay, Terry Amori, thank you. Grounded in a Hashem. Okay. Okay, I mean, you said, I think it's about the root of truth in the mind of a righteous man. Yes, and I think, I mean, you're both correct, Terry and Lori, we're going to zero in a little more specifically, and I think, Amit, you have, you're getting us on the right track. I will suggest that the root of the righteous is their knowledge of Torah. Okay, and Amit, you've focused in on the mind of the righteous man, which is clearly where the righteous people are. They're, they're in the world of ideas, so this is about what's going on in their mind. While their good deeds may be fruit on the branches of the tree, the root of that fruit is the righteous person's knowledge of Torah and his ability to think clearly in the world of ideas, in the world of understanding, in the world of consequences. That supplies the nutrients and support for the righteous person's good deeds. So even if the righteous person falters or is forcefully cut down, the roots still remain, and new growth can begin from those roots. So even if a righteous person falters, for example, yeah, he errs and commits a sin, the righteous person's knowledge of Torah still remains and can still serve to support him. So now let's contrast that with the person in the first half. In the first half, it says that a man will not be established by wickedness. Now, we know from our previous studies that wickedness is action that is not in line with true ideas and reality uh, and, and is particularly and consciously evil. So, it should really come as no surprise that a man couldn't be established by this because in this context, I'm going to suggest that the word established means that the person has a solid foundation that's going to last over time. But how could that possibly happen for someone who is wicked? How could a foundation, one that would last, be built on actions that are a result of incorrect ideas and that are inconsistent with true ideas and reality? It's an impossibility. I mean, it would be a, a complete contradiction in, in just logic. Since a per wicked person is driven by his desires, desires that are not in line with reality, those desires must, by definition, be based on something in the physical world. And generally, I'll suggest that money and power are perhaps the two biggest examples. And yet we know that physical things have an end. There can be no establishment, no lasting foundation over time, no root system that survives, whether or not the person falters, for the wicked because they're basing it on something that has no real lasting characteristic to it. Whereas the righteous are basing their roots on true ideas, true concepts, things that last over time, that are eternal. 
And we can see how the wicked falter in examples from history. I mean, when has a person managed to establish himself permanently, you know, the idea of establishment, on the basis of wickedness? We see people who are temporarily successful, but sooner or later the consequences of their actions and their incorrect ideas catch up with them. Hitler may be one of the most obvious and greatest examples. He not only did not establish himself, rather he earned himself everlasting abhorrence. So the verse seems to be dealing with what does and doesn't work in establishing the foundation for a person's life. Wickedness simply won't work, and the true ideas will stand fast even if a person's individual situation falters. So we see that a man will not, cannot be established by wickedness because of its very nature, and the root of the righteous will not falter because of the very nature of what that root is made of, which is the focus on ideas of Torah, true ideas, and reality. Any questions about this verse? Okay, I'll take no response as a, uh, as a no. Let's move on to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. And the verse reads, A virtuous woman is the crown of her husband, but a shameful, could be translated embarrassing, one is like rot in his bones. A virtuous woman is the crown of her husband, but a shameful, or perhaps could be embarrassing one, is like rot in his bones. So as before, let's ask ourselves, what are the questions? What questions would we ask around that verse in order to understand its meaning? A virtuous woman is the crown of her husband, but a shameful one is like rot in his bones. Okay, Prescott, a capable wife is a crown for her husband, but an incompetent one is like rotten his bones. Okay, slightly different translation. Uh, uh, but generally, I think, focused in the, uh, yeah, JPS version, thank you. Uh, generally focused in the same direction. So, I mean, you said, I think it says that like root, truth and commandments of Hashem are firmly rooted in a righteous man's mind, else he is not righteous. Okay. But how does that relate to a virtuous or capable woman? So let me suggest some questions for us to consider before we try to get into a solution. First of all, what's a virtuous woman? Uh, Prescott's translation is a capable wife. Uh, the Hebrew is Ashes Chayel. Uh, often translated virtuous, but can be translated other ways. What is a person like that? When we talk about a, a virtuous woman, what does that mean? And then, 
How is a virtuous woman a crown to her husband? I mean, it's an interesting metaphor that King Solomon's creating here. Uh, I mean, men don't wear their, uh, you know, their wives uh, around their heads. So what is he referring to when he says it's a crown to her husband? It's obviously some kind of a metaphor. And then, why is a shameful woman like rot in his bones? So I'd like to suggest that Proverbs defines a virtuous woman at the end of the book, in chapter 31. The very end of Proverbs is a fairly famous section about the Aishas Chayel, the virtuous woman. And while the detailed coverage of that is a study for another time, uh, let me summarize it by saying my understanding, based on my studies with Rabbi Moskowitz, is that a virtuous woman represents a woman of Proverbs. This is someone who completely lives the life of Proverbs. And she's described in Proverbs 31, chapter 10, or sorry, verse 10 through verse 31. And let me just read a couple of uh, some of the, the sentences here. Uh, I'm reading from the, uh, the Art Scroll Tanakh, uh, and it says, um, An accomplished woman who can find, far beyond pearls is her value. Her husband's heart relies on her, he shall lack no fortune, she bestows goodness upon him, never evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, and her hands work willingly. Um, she, uh, I'm going to skip around just a little bit, she... Uh, envisions a field and buys it. From the fruit of her handiwork, she plants a vineyard. Uh, she discerns that her enterprise is good. Her lamp is not snuffed out by night. Uh, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her palms support the spindle. She's involved in, you know, very practical everyday things here. She spreads out her palms to the poor uh, and extends her hand to the hands to the destitute. Uh, she makes luxurious bedspreads uh, for herself. Uh, and she makes a cloak and sells it, delivers a belt to the peddler. Uh, strength and majesty are her raiment, and she joyfully waits the last day. Uh, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Uh, and so on and so forth. She is the epitome of someone who is living uh, the life of Proverbs. Um, so, uh, let me pause and, and pick up on, uh, on comments. Uh, uh, Prescott, very good. A, a crown is given by someone else. It's not taken. And you've said, Hashem crowns a man with a virtuous woman. He is raised up uh, by this blessing. And yes, we all, all uh, I think, I, it's hard for me to imagine a, a man who would not desire uh, a wife uh, like this. And Terry and Laura, yes, she cares about her husband and her children and her house. Um, uh, so, uh, and I mean, yes, a woman will, will look to her husband and, and uh, uh, may cling uh, to her husband. And if she's not virtuous, then uh, it's like a diseased root. So... How is a virtuous woman a crown to her husband? Well, I'll suggest that a crown 
represents something that a person is noted for, or that represents a certain achievement, or provides him a certain level of dignity in the eyes of others. And in this case, uh, a virtuous woman compared to a crown represents several things. First, I'll suggest that it represents the fact that the husband chose his wife wisely. Uh, the verse doesn't say that a beautiful woman is a crown to her husband, uh, or, you know, necessarily a, um, uh, a rich woman is a crown to her husband, or any other specific attribute. It identifies a virtuous woman, which represents practical wisdom at its highest. And so everything she's involved in, when he goes somewhere and so forth, and, and it's known that his wife is that person, that reflects back on him. And second, uh, and these are kind of two ways of looking perhaps at a very similar idea, her good and wise deeds and the way that she handles her life reflect on her husband. So she's a crown to him in two ways. One, in showing his good judgment in selecting her, and two, in reflecting back on him every day, because every time she does good deeds, there's that sort of tangential reflection uh, back on her husband. Okay. And I, I should point out that in my understanding of Proverbs 31 is that uh, this is designed to talk about the, the virtuous person, a person of Proverbs. And there are reasons that uh, King Solomon chose to put it in the realm of a woman, but we could see this happening, you know, the other way as well. That when a man is virtuous, lives like a Proverbs, does wise things, good things, it reflects back on his wife. And it reflects positively on her that she chose him. So I'm not trying to single out that this is a one-way street. By contrast, a shameful woman, one who embarrasses her husband through shameful acts, is like a rot in his bones. He can't get rid of it. It eats away at him, slowly and without ceasing. Every single day he has to endure this person who is permanently tied to him. He has to put up with her shameful acts and the embarrassing things that she does. And it just like grinds away at him day after day after day after day, which is a really horrible position to be in. And when she does um, shameful things or embarrassing things, it also uh, reflects back on him. So by contrast to the husband in the first half of the verse, the shameful wife brings shame to her husband, again in two ways. First, the fact that he chose such a person reflects on his wisdom and judgment in choosing her. And again, it could be the other way around if we're talking about the, you know, the reflection of a husband back to a wife. Second, her everyday shameful and embarrassing deeds reflect negatively on him. Every time she does something embarrassing or shameful, you know, part of it reflects back on him. So I'll suggest that the verse is talking about the effect of choosing a wife, the effect of choosing a wife on a husband, or that is the effect on the husband of choosing a wife. Um, and what the verse is doing is it is taking the two extremes, the completely virtuous woman in the first half 
and the shameful, embarrassing woman in the second half. Now, there are obviously all kinds of people in between those two spectrums, but generally, proverb tends to take uh, the ultimate cases uh, so that we can see the clear contrast. Any questions on this verse? A virtuous woman is a wonderful thing to find. And I will tell you, I have the good fortune of being married to one. So. Okay, any questions? Okay, uh, let's continue on. And based on some work done by Rabbi Moskowitz, I would like to do the next three verses together. So this is Proverbs chapter 12, verses 5, 6, and 7. Sometimes in Mishlei, verses can be interpreted uh, as a group because they have a common theme. Sometimes it's two, in this case, it's three. And here are the verses. Verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are justice, but the, but the counsel of the wicked uh, is deceit. The thoughts of the righteous are justice, but the counsel of the wicked uh, is or are deceit. Verse 6. The words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. The words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. And then verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more but the house of the righteous shall stand. Okay. So you've got three verses there. What are the questions? What questions would we ask about those verses in order to understand them? Any ideas? What kinds of questions? I'm not sure of that posting. I'm suspecting that was an inadvertent click of the send button. So here are some thoughts to get us started. First verse, chapter verse 5, says the thoughts of the righteous are justice. So what are the thoughts of the righteous? And what does that mean? And, and why are they considered justice? And don't the righteous think other thoughts besides justice? So why does it make that like that's all they think? Then we note that verse 5 talks about the thoughts of the righteous, but it doesn't say anything about his actions. So we can ask, well, why is the verse focused on his thoughts? And then it says, what's the counsel of the wicked? And why is, and so we'd want to ask, I'm sorry, mentions the counsel of the wicked. We'd want to ask, well, what does that mean? And why is that considered deceit? And interestingly, the first half 
of verse 5 is talking about the thoughts of the righteous. The second half is talking about the counsel of the wicked, which seems to be more about an action. So what's the comparison between the two there? And then in verse 6, it says, the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. Well, what does that mean? And in the second half of verse 6, it says, the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. How does the upright deliver them? And who is the them? Who is the them that the upright is delivering? And in verse 7, then it says, Why are the wicked overthrown and are no more? I mean, we don't necessarily see that that always happens. And what's this, what's the house of the righteous mean? And what is the theme between all three of these verses? Okay, and let me pause and look at comments. Terry and Laura, you mentioned the words of the righteous say much, with truth as the root, while the, un, uh, while the unrighteous lie, okay, uh, and have no truth, okay, good point. Good point. So, first, let's talk about the thoughts of the righteous. I'll suggest to you that justice, and again, I am, I am sharing with you ideas, and as with all of these, uh, virtually all of these classes, uh, ideas that I have received from uh, my teacher, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz. Okay. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'll suggest that justice is a result of a person's knowledge of God. That the source of the righteous person's justice is his knowledge of God. It's not a particular area of thought it's a basic foundation of his thoughts. That is, the, the righteous person is focused on thinking about justice and how to carry it out. This is a very basic thing to them. That is what their whole mindset is about. Okay? They see the big picture of the world, how they fit into it, um, and how they are just one little piece in the giant sea of humanity. They are not self-focused. Yes, they take care of themselves, but that's a very practical thing. Their thoughts are all about uh, uh, God and the systems that he created and how they can uh, work with and benefit mankind. So they see themselves uh, as a part of that. So, um, for example, a, a righteous person uh, when executing a business deal, would be thinking about the total impact of that, not just, okay, how can I maximize my own profit? Uh, he'd also be uh, thinking about the other party. Is this a win for them? Is this a good thing? Uh, is there any potentially larger impact on society? Um, another example, if, if a righteous person was asked for advice, the righteous person would be thinking about what's best for all parties involved and how do I further... Uh, good and true ideas in the world. I'm not focusing just on myself or 
any personal gain or ego gratification that I could get out of the situation. That's not where the righteous live. They live in the area of justice. So the thoughts of the righteous are all about justice. That's, that's where they're focused. Okay, let me pause and uh, check for questions here. Um, are words of the wicked so much harsh as to lie and wait for blood? Does it say the wicked things the wicked people say? Uh, or think about the righteous. I mean, let's hold that thought for uh, for just a second. We're going to get there about um, the uh, the lying in wait for blood. The second half of verse five talks about the counsel of the wicked uh, is deceit. So we talked about what the righteous are thinking about in the first half of verse five. So what are the wicked thinking about? What's their counsel? Well, it's self-centered. It's all focused on getting what they want. It's about coming up with plans and schemes and uh, ways to get the things they want, which generally will boil down to probably money and power. They are not concerned about the other person or society or whatever. They're scheming to cut corners and shortchange others uh, in order to get their desires met. And again, we're talking about the wicked here, not just a middle-of-the-road person, a, a wicked person at the far end of the spectrum. So their counsel, the advice they would give someone else, is deceit. It's deceptive. It's dishonest. It's focused only on fooling the other person or in aiding them to get what they want. So the purpose of the wicked person's plan is always for deceit. In other words, to get gain at the expense of others. And again, he's not thinking about other people. He's only thinking about himself and how he can get gain through other people. For the righteous, his relationship to others is always to benefit them. So this first verse is dealing with thoughts. That is, where the thought processes go for the righteous versus the wicked. Okay? Any questions so far on verse 5? Okay, so let's go on to verse 6, and uh, Amit raised a question around uh, uh, the words of the wicked. Uh, are they so harsh as to lie and wait for blood? So I'm going to suggest that an interpretation of what it means to lie and wait for blood, and that is the wicked person will murder to get what he wants. I mean... They're thinking uh, about getting what they want, and they want it, and they will go to violent means to get it, and in the case of this verse, it's saying that they will murder to get it. Now, that presents the difficulty, because in the verse beforehand, we said, well, the counsel of the wicked is deceit. So they are, um, they are presenting... Uh, or plans and schemes and so forth and advice uh, in order to get what they want. Uh, and Prescott, you're absolutely right. He's acting like an animal uh, when he's wicked. He only cares about what he wants. And he's going to do whatever he needs to do to get it. So what happens between verse 5 and verse 6? Because it appears there's a contradiction there. And what Rabbi Moskowitz suggested is, uh, or indicated is, the verses are showing a progression. 
At first, the wicked person makes his schemes and his plans to deceitfully get what he wants. That's his goal, to get what he wants, period. But when he can't get what he wants, if those plans fail, then he moves up to murder in order to get what he wants. He ambushes the person in order to get what he wants. There is a progression that happens here. Uh, and, and we're not talking about a person who does a one-time violent act out of passion. We're talking about an extreme case, a really wicked person. Um, you could argue that not every wicked person goes to murder, but the ultimate case does. So to digress on this point, we could say that there are three kinds of people those who consciously choose to live their lives based on thought and true ideas, people we would call the righteous. Then there are those who choose to become totally wicked, totally committed to their emotional desires no matter what. And then there's a third category of what we could call mediocrity. The people in between, who may have the desires of the wicked, but they don't carry them out because of some emotional or uh, reason or conscience or societal pressures. And I'll suggest to you that this third group is kind of wishy-washy, this middle group. There's no solid commitment either way. The person in that group doesn't know how to protect himself because he hasn't been involved in the study of rational ideas and consequences. So he's kind of a product of his society. If the society is successful, so he'll ride the wave with them and he'll be successful because he goes along with what society dictates around him. If society is failing, then he'll be failing. He's not an independent thinker. And ultimately, he will not achieve real satisfaction, because he's not dealing with his emotions and the emotional issues that he has in the conflicts. He's just floating along. By contrast, for the wicked and the righteous, they are the cause of the life around them. They make things happen. They make decisions. The mediocre don't really make decisions. They're more controlled by society. They're like sort of a herd mentality. The wicked have definitely gone down the road of letting their emotions and their emotional desires guide their lives. This is like a Hitler-type person. There's no wishy-washiness there. It's a complete commitment. A person like that has a plan. It's a total way of life. It's a total philosophy. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out that Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. I mean, Hitler had a philosophy. It wasn't just a haphazard thing. He didn't just fall into this. It was based on passion and desires that he had. So this type of person progresses from evil schemes that are designed to fulfill his desires, indicated in verse 5, to ultimately murder in order to get what he wants. So verse 5 to verse 6 is showing us this progression. Okay, now let me pause and check uh, comments here. Amit, you wrote, uh, it says the future strife and injustice symbolize by blood, the righteous by their words of compassion and justice calm or correct the wicked or prevent the evils. Is that correct? Very good question. So let's look at uh, the second half of verse 6. Um, uh, so, verse 5 says that the thoughts of the righteous are justice. Verse 6 says, the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. So there's a progression here as well. 
First, the righteous are thinking thoughts that are based on justice and the Torah approach to life. So, as we just discussed, they're thinking about how to benefit society and other people, not necessarily themselves. So, when it says the mouth of the upright, that means the words coming out of the mouth of an upright person. They're words of, of musr, of uh, rational thinking, of seeing consequences, of how to avoid failures, of how to plan correctly and think through situations. They're words of wisdom. So it says, the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. Who's the them? Well, the righteous know how to protect themselves, but the public, this group we were calling mediocrity, they are not protected. So the righteous try to help the people to avoid the schemes of the wicked and get out of their problems. So the them ends up being the people who listen to the upright. The upright can see through the schemes of the wicked and can help steer people away from danger and from the harm that the wicked will do upon them. So the words of the upright can deliver those who listen to them. Even though those people may not be wise themselves, they can be helped and saved from the harm of the wicked and helped with their own problems by listening to the upright, to the wise ones. Okay, and Amit, you're right. It's not only words, it's actions too. In other words, the, the, when the mouth of the upright shall deliver them, it's the, the words of the upright can save the people if the people will listen to them and act on the basis of those words. Okay, and Terry and Laurie, you're right. The mediocrity is going with the wind. And you, you, we all know people like that. You know, they float with whatever society happens to be doing. They're not thinking and making decisions on their own. They're letting society move them uh, in one direction or another. Okay, now let's take a look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous shall stand. So what happens here? As the wicked move away from reality because of their evil schemes, they are farther and farther away from reality, then reality has to destroy them. Not because of some magical force, but simply because when you are operating farther and farther away from reality, you are bound to make mistakes that will ultimately be fatal to you. For example, I mean, to take a simple thing, uh, we, we all know not to walk on a, uh, a superhighway where cars are going by at 70 miles an hour and just walk out in the middle of it. Why? Because we know we will get smushed by a big car or truck. We know not to step off a a the edge of a 20-story building because gravity will pull us down and there will be a big splat at the bottom. But if we didn't operate in accordance with reality, if I didn't realize that those trucks would hit me or those cars, or I didn't realize that gravity would cause me to go smush, then I might make a ridiculous mistake like step off that building because I think, oh, I'd like a better view. I'll step out here a little bit. So... And reality will destroy me, not because it, it specifically does so in a magical way, but because my failure to live in accordance with reality will cause my own destruction. So as the wicked move farther and farther away from reality, they weaken themselves and open themselves up to destruction. This happened to Hitler. The more wicked he became, 
the farther he moved away from reality, and he began to make mistakes, and eventually big mistakes. Until the end of the war, he was making very big mistakes that ultimately led uh, to Germany's downfall. So the wicked fall under the weight of their own lack of truth and reality, and their distance from reality. If a person is not making decisions in reality, sooner or later, the person is going to fail. And if they don't figure it out soon enough, reality will end up destroying them. Now, mediocrity will not necessarily have the failure of the wicked because they don't necessarily act on their evil desires. They're more controlled, as we said, by the society around them. Uh, and so as society is successful, they'll be more successful. If society is a failure, then they'll be a failure. They have never made a decision about whether to operate on the basis of truth and justice or on the basis of their desires or the wicked's desires like power and money. So we see that certain societies eventually were destroyed. They started out living practically, but then when they got most of the practical things taken care of, they started living according to their emotions, and then the societies ultimately destroyed. And that happened to Rome. They were eventually destroyed by, by barbarians. But the second half of the verse says, but the house of the righteous shall stand. So the second half of verse 7 is contrasting what happens to the righteous in comparison to the destruction of the wicked. Since the righteous are basing their lives on true ideas and reality, their house will stand. And I'm interpreting their house as the dwelling in which, that they, which they occupy. The righteous are constantly involved in truth and real ideas. That's the focus of their lives, and that will endure. It will stand while the wicked, as indicated in the first half of verse 7, uh, will be overthrown and will be no more. Okay, any questions on these verses? Okay, and Terry and Laurie, you're right. We are, we are to follow the laws that Hashem has put into place, and when we're living under the laws of nature like gravity, we better, or otherwise, we're going to get really uncomfortable consequences. Not because God is reaching out and whacking at us, but because, you know, that's the natural consequence of our actions. And so it's up to us to use our minds to learn about those laws and understand them and act in accordance with them. Okay, any other questions or comments on these verses? Okay, in that case, uh, we'll stop here for tonight.